Well, amen. Thank you, choir, for blessing us with that wonderful singing. And uh, Dr. Reggie, thank you for the privilege of being here tonight. What a joy to come to this uh, great church. I've heard so much about it over the years. Uh, when I was a seminary student, I used to hear people talk about Temple Church in Ruston. And although I live in Alabama, I still hear about this great church. And it's an honor to be with you. Thank you for letting me come. I love your uh, pastor. Isn't he a precious young man of God? I just uh, <laughs> such an impressive young man. And I was uh, watching him as he made those announcements, and I thought, I hope when I grow up I could be like that. I, <laughs> I uh, apologize for being a little immobile. I've had some... Uh, a joint replacements. I had a knee replaced. It looks like I'm going to have to have a hip replaced, so I hope you'll pray for me that uh, I'll be able to maneuver a little better. Uh, talking about replacements, I heard about this guy over in Georgia the other day who went into the hospital to have a brain transplant. <clears throat> the doctor put him to sleep and uh, opened up his head and took out his old brain, dropped it in a garbage can. And he stepped out of the room to get his replacement brain. And while he was out of the room, the guy woke up. And he pulled the tubes out of his nose and out of his veins and jumped up and ran out the front door. Uh, they've been looking for him for the last two years. This week, the FBI reported that he's been found. He's serving as a presidential advisor in Washington, D.C. <laughs> Well, that's terrible, isn't it? Uh, you won't ever let me come back now. That's it. Now. I want you to open your Bibles, if you have them with you tonight, please, to Psalm 37. Psalm 37. I've been preaching, if I live till uh, next year, almost 60 years. And in all of these 60 years, I do not recall a single time when I have sensed a greater despondency and discouragement among God's people and people in general than I sense in the day in which we live. There is an air of uncertainty and despondency that permeates our culture today. And many people, particularly older folks who've lived to see better days, are scratching their heads and saying, what is going to happen? These are bad times. You don't have to be a very intelligent person to know that these are bad times. They're bad times economically. Other than the Great Depression, this nation has never faced a financial crisis like we're facing today. Many economists tell us that we've spent ourselves into a debt that we may never be able to. To repay. These are bad times economically. Someone said the other day that a guy was walking down the streets of Washington, D.C., and he stopped a man, put a gun in his face, and said, Give me all your money. And the man said, Well, you can't have my money. I'm a U.S. congressman. And the guy said, Well, then give me all my money.
These are bad times economically. But second of all, these are bad times culturally. These are times when uh, we are seeing the values that we were brought up with crumble before our very eyes. What you taught your children and what you're teaching, what your mom and dad taught you are now being ridiculed and scoffed at and moral principles that have been steady for thousands of years are crumbling before our very eyes. These are bad days culturally. But most of all, these are bad days spiritually. When the church ought to be at her very best, we find ourselves at our very worst. Southern Baptists have been awfully proud for many years to say that while other denominations and religious bodies around us are declining, Southern Baptists have continued to grow. That can no longer be said. For the first time in the history of our convention, we're seeing a steady decline in our baptism. Did you realize last year, ladies and gentlemen, that Southern Baptists baptized the fewest people that we have baptized since 1948. Now think about that. With thousands of more churches and millions of more people to be prospects, we couldn't baptize as many people last year as they did in 1948. These are bad times. Everywhere you look, these are bad times. But ladies and gentlemen, I'm not here tonight to talk to you about bad times because we all know these are bad times. But I'm here to tell you what you're to do when there are bad times. What did God tell us to do? When we're surrounded with wickedness and ungodliness and when our minds are troubled about what we're seeing, what does God specifically tell us that we're to do in bad times? I want to show you three simple little principles that God lists in this scripture. He tells us specifically these words, Fret not thyself because of evildoers, neither be thou envious against the workers of iniquity, for they shall soon be cut down like the grass and wither as the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. So shalt thou dwell in the land and verily thou shalt be fed. Delight thyself also in the Lord, and he shall give thee the desires of thine heart. Now let me isolate three simple things the psalmist said were to do in bad times, and I believe they'll be an encouragement to you. Number one, God said we are to refrain from fretting. Now notice what he specifically says. Fret not thyself because of evildoers. He don't want us to fret. That word fret is a very interesting and intriguing word. It is a word that describes something that's really hot. And it was often used to describe an inner vexation when something was burning inwardly. We have a little phrase in our English language that describes it rather accurately. When you sometimes get frustrated, have you ever said, that just burns me up? What do you mean that just burns you up? It means that you're inwardly vexed and you're troubled and you're upset and you're whining and you're complaining. Simply put, you're fretting and God says you're not to fret. Now why does God not want you to fret? If God specifically tells me I don't want you to fret, 
that I need to find out why he doesn't want me to fret. So let me give you three reasons why you shouldn't fret. Follow me very closely. Number one, you shouldn't fret because it corrupts your spirit. Did you notice the way the psalmist phrased that little statement? Look what he said, fret not thyself. Did you notice that he hooked the word fretting with thyself? Fret not thyself. Now, if you had said that or I'd said that, we probably wouldn't have said it that way. We'd have said don't fret or fret not. But notice that he specifically links it up to thyself. Fret not thyself. So what he's literally saying is don't fret yourself. What that means is that when you fret, it hurts you worse than it hurts the person you're fretting toward. Have you ever been around a fretful person? They make life miserable for everybody. I asked a man the other day in a church where I was, Brother Reggie, I said, how are you feeling, sir? That's the last word I said. <laughs> About 35 minutes later, he finished his medical report. I had a woman tell me the other day, she came to me after I'd preached, she said, Brother Hill, I've just had gallbladder surgery. And she, had a, she said, I had gallstones taken out as big as golf balls. She said, I've got them in the car if you'd like to see it. <laughs> Have you ever been around fretful people? I mean, they, it, fretfulness just corrupts your spirit. It causes you to think wrong. Paul had a little analogy in the, one of the epistles, and, and we quite often misunderstand this verse. You, do you remember when Paul says, warn them that are unruly, comfort the feeble-minded? Most of the time when we see that word feeble-minded, we think of people who are a little bit uh, slow mentally, somebody who's uh, not quite all there. And we even use it in a derogatory term. We say, well, he's feeble-minded. But literally now, the word feeble-minded doesn't mean somebody that is mentally deficient. If you look it up in the Greek language, you'll see that feeble-minded is translated small spirit. It's somebody whose spirit has swiveled away until they have a small spirit. By contrast, have you ever heard people referred to as having a big spirit? What do you mean when you say a person's got a big spirit? Well, they're warm and they're kind and they're gracious and hospitable and you like to be around them. You say he's got a big spirit. But when you say he's got a little spirit, you mean that something's not quite right in his desires. And that's what happens when you fret. It corrupts your spirit and it causes you to wither away until your soul swivels up and becomes cynical and uncaring. But let me show you a second thing. Not only does fretfulness corrupt your spirit, but it's contagious to the saints. Have you ever noticed that a fretful person has a tendency to make somebody else fretful also? Have you ever come to church on Sunday morning and your preacher preached one of the greatest sermons ever preached in the history of the Christian church? And boy, you walked out the back door praising God and declaring what a great preacher he was. Man, you was on a mountaintop and some cynical, fretting man walked up to you and said, wasn't much that sermon today, was it? <laughs> and just like that, that man's fretful spirit had caused you to be fretful also. It's contagious. Uh, I want to share this story with you. I, I hope you'll listen carefully to it. 
uh, I, I'm not a, you know, a little guy, but I used to really be a, a really big guy. You say, well, you, you're pretty big now. But I, I mean, I used to be really big. I used to weigh about 350 pounds. Uh, I asked my wife, I was so big one morning, I said, honey, have you seen my belt around the house? She said, oh, will it go around the house now? I mean, I was bad news. Now, by the grace of God, I've been able to lose a little bit of weight. And not quite as big as it used to be. So, somebody asked my wife, Carol, recently, uh, Carol, how do you like Brother Junior since he's lost some weight? She said, well, it's not much different. Before he lost the weight, I was married to a, a balloon. Now that he's lost the weight, I'm married to a prune. Folks, I have so much sagging skin on my body, I could plant a garden in it. Now, unless you are a senior adult, and I see a lot of you are senior adults, you're not going to understand what I'm about to say. So you kids, just take out your phone, send a text message, because you're not going to understand this. But I want to tell you how much sagging skin I have. I have so much sagging skin on my body. I reached down the other morning to pull up my socks and discovered I didn't have on any. <laughs> now, you kids didn't know what that's all about, did you? But if you're a senior adult, I guarantee you, you know what that is. So I was a big guy. And I was over in Georgia in a revival, and I preached that morning. And it's one of those hallelujah services where God just pours out His Spirit on you. And you just, uh, boy, it's just wonderful. You've been in those kind of services sometimes. And I was rejoicing in all of those folks who had been saved in such a sweet spirit. I stand at the back door shaking hands. And this man walked up to me. And he handed me a little piece of paper, and he said, Preacher, I wish you'd read this when you have a chance. And so I, I just put it in my pocket and, frankly, forgot all about it. But after I got over to my room that afternoon, I was taking off my coat, and I remembered that note that he'd written me. And so I thought, well, I, I imagine he, he wanted to commend me about the service or something, so I'll just read it see what he says. And here's what that note said. Dear preacher, that was a good sermon you preached today, but it would have been a lot better if you weren't so fat. And in one portion of a second, that man took me from the mountaintop of joy down to the valley of discouragement. He rubbed up against me had corrupted my spirit. Has that ever happened to you? You ever have people rub up against you and steal the joy that's welling up in your heart? Folks, I tell you what I've discovered. You can't help getting old, but you don't have to be old and grouchy. And if anybody in the world ought to have a sweet godliness about them, 
It ought to be men and women who've been saved and know we're going to heaven and we've got a Lord that loves us and God give us grace not to corrupt others with our fretful spirit. Now let me give you the flip side of that. Not so awful long after I was in that church over in Georgia where that guy wrote me that letter, I was up in Cincinnati, Ohio. And I was telling that story that morning And little did I know that sitting out in the audience was a little girl named Molly, not yet a teenager. And when I got through preaching, little Molly walked up to me and gave me this note. Listen to what it said. Dear Junior Hill, you touched my heart today. I believe you're a strong man of God. Many crowns await you in heaven. P.S. Listen to Molly's P.S. You're not fat, ugly, nerdy, or dorky. (laughs) You're handsome to me, Brother Junior. Love, Molly. Now, which one of those notes had you rather get? Which one of them lifted my spirit and caused me to have joy? And which of them brought me down into the valley? You see what I'm saying to you? Fretfulness is contagious. And if you just could fret yourself and not be around anybody, it'd be one thing, but you can't do that. So here's the advice I'm going to give you. Now, Brother Reggie don't like me to tell you this because he wants you to come to church. But, but I'm going to give you some Junior Hill philosophy. If you've got a fretful spirit and you can't do anything about it and you can't calm it, let me tell you what you do. Just don't come to church. <laughs> Stay home and watch Joel Osteen on television. Because <laughs> if you come to church with a fretful spirit, You're going to make somebody else fretful also. It corrupts your spirit, and it's contagious to the saints. But now there's a third thing, and this is probably the worst part of all. Fretfulness is confusing to sinners. You see, when an unsaved man or woman sees a fretful person, they don't know how to quite put that in perspective. Now, those of us that are Christians, we know that we all lose our cool and we don't always do right. But the world expects a better standard of us. And sometimes when the world sees a child of God fretting and whining and complaining, they don't understand that it's confusing to sinners. I had that illustrated to me not long ago. I I went to sit down at a restaurant to eat. And the waitress came and uh, took my order, and she left, and she just didn't come back. I don't mean she didn't come back soon. I mean she didn't come back, period. (laughs) She just didn't come back. And thankfully, God was giving me grace, and I was just sitting there counting the grains of salt in the salt shaker. (laughs) After about an hour, and I don't exaggerate, say about an hour, She walked by my table, and she stopped and said, Oh, sir, I didn't bring your meal, did I? 
I said, that's all right, man. I'd just like to tell you this salt shaker has 40,000 grains of salt. <laughs> Brother Reggie, she brought me a meal, laid the ticket down. I ate the meal and was getting ready to get up and leave. And I saw a man across the other side of the restaurant get up. I thought he was going to pay his bill. But to my surprise, he came over to the table and picked up my bill and he said, I'll get that, sir. And I said, uh, do I know you, sir? He said, no, Brother Junior, you probably don't know me, but I know you. He said, 30 years ago, when I was a little seven-year-old boy, you came to my church and I got saved. And Brother Junior, I've been sitting over here watching you while you ate. And I said, thank God I didn't cuss. <laughs> Somebody's watching you, folks. They may not tell you that they're watching you, but they're watching you. These young kids, they look like they're in the outer space. They don't know what's going on. But you know they're watching you adults. They're listening to what we say. And they're making observations that will shape their lives. May God give us grace to have a standard of righteousness that somebody could see and be pleased that we know God. Don't fret. Well, I took too long on number one, and so I'll try to hurry up number two. I probably won't, but I'm going to try to. <laughs> Refrain from fretting. Second, rely on his faithfulness. Now notice what he said. Trust in the Lord and do good. So shalt thou dwell in the land. And look at the words. And verily, verily, thou shalt be fed. Now that is a promise that God will supply the needs of his children. I tell you one of the greatest joys that I've learned as a man of God and as a traveling evangelist is that God does take care of his children. The psalmist said over in a little portion of this passage a little later, these majestic words. He said, I have been young and now am old, yet have I not seen the righteous forsaken, nor his seed begging bread. I want to show you three things that God does about providing our needs, and I don't have time to elaborate on them. Let me just give them to you and let you fill them in. Number one, God supplies what we don't have. Paul said in Philippians, For my God shall supply all your need according to his riches in glory. God supplies what you don't have. I, I want to give you just a brief testimony about a conviction I have, and I want you to hear me closely so you won't misunderstand it. When I started in evangelism 47 years ago, one of the things that I resolved in my heart was that I would never talk about money and I would never ask anybody for money. Now I want to stop right there before I go any further and say that there's nothing wrong with ministries asking for money. As a matter of fact, that's biblically right and correct. Paul talked about taking care of the saints, the needy saints. 
And ministries have to have funds to survive. How could Billy Graham ever have done what he has done if there weren't millions of people out there who loved him and supported him and sent him gifts for his ministry? And so don't go out of here and tell folks Brother Hill said you should never ask for money for God's work. No, it's nothing wrong with that. But I'm just telling you that in my own personal, private personality, I could never quite bring myself to do that. Somehow, I just, I just couldn't do that. And so I've never sent out a letter soliciting funds. I don't ever ask churches for money. I don't ever say to a church, you've got to give me this. I don't talk about money. I, I just have no conversation about money. And I want to tell you a very intriguing thing. Though I have never asked any man for money, God has given me more accidentally than I could get on purpose by trying. God just has a remarkable way of giving you what you don't have if you will trust Him. He'll supply your need if you make Him the source of your supply. When I first started in evangelism, Brother Reggie, I used to preach in little bitty churches. I'm talking about 12, 15, 30, uh, little bitty tiny congregations. And my offerings would be $25, maybe 50 sometimes, occasionally 75. That's basically what they gave me. Sometimes they'd give me a basket of beans and some tomatoes and old chicken about to die with some illness. <laughs> but that's basically what I got. And I never will forget, I was in this little old country church somewhere, and I'd preach that night, and a man walked up to me after the service was over and said, Brother Junior, I want to give you this. And he placed in my hand a piece of paper, and I knew immediately that it was money. Let me give you an insight about preachers. Preachers know what money feels like. <laughs> and I knew it was money, but I wasn't going to look at it in his presence, so I just stuck it in my pocket like it didn't matter. As soon as the service was over, I was riding home, and I remembered that and opened it up. It was a $100 bill. At that time, I had never possessed a $100 bill, not one in my lifetime did I ever have. Hadn't seen many of them. And so I did what all Holy Ghost godly preachers do. I folded that thing up real neat and hid it in the back of my pocketbook so Carol wouldn't know I had it. Now, don't you men look spiritual like you don't know what I'm talking about. And Brother Reggie, I had a smugness. I got a $100 bill. Man, I'm somebody. I got a $100 bill. And several days later, I was this old run-down pastor in a little country church. And we was riding down the road in an old dilapidated car, and he began to cry. Brother Junior, this old car's tires are about to blow out. Pray I'll have some money to buy them. And God just put his hand on that money. Give it to him. God, that's my money. I don't want to do that. That's my money. But you know, before I tell you that that's what I had to do, because when God tells you to do something, you have to do it. So I just gave it to him. I wish it made me feel good. It didn't make me feel good at all. <laughs> I said, Lord, I had a $100. Several weeks later, I was in another church, and a woman, of all things, women rarely ever do this kind of thing, not because they're not spiritual, but they're just a little bit 
you know, it's not the forward thing for a woman to do. But this woman walked up to me, and uh, she said, Preacher, I don't know why I'm doing this. It's not my normal pattern, but I've been pressed to give you this. And she gave me a $100 bill. I folded that one up and hid it away. A few days later, I was with another preacher. It's always preachers for some reason. I don't know why. And I gave it away. Now, I want to give you a little wonderful conclusion to that story. For over 40 years, I've been giving away that $100 bill. I've got two of them in my pocketbook right now waiting to see who God's going to make me give it to. Had a little boy come up the other day when I said that, and he said, I believe it's me, Brother Jim. <laughs> and folks, you know what God has taught me about it? That when I realize that my source is the God of heaven, then the source is always adequate to the supply. You don't have to bow before the pagans of this world and beg. If you're a child of God, just say, Jesus, I've got this need, and if it's your desire, give it to me, and God will be faithful to supply what you don't have. He will sustain what you already have, and he'll satisfy you about what you can't have. Have you ever noticed that sometimes God takes away your desire for things, and causes you to be content with what you have. That's what Paul meant when he said, I've learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. Will Rogers, the old Oklahoma humorist, put it well when he described it like this. He said a lot of people who live in the country today are making plans to move to the country so they can make enough money to move to the country. You see, folks... Sometimes we don't understand that God satisfies what you can't have. I don't have a big boat. I don't have an airplane. I don't have a big farm with thousands of cattle. I don't have un unlimited funds in the bank. But you know the good part about it? I don't care. I mean, I don't care. And it doesn't bother me, and I don't waste any time fretting over it because I have what I need, and that's all that anybody needs in this world. Now, there's one other thing. And if it all had to be summarized in one single statement, this is the conclusion to the whole sermon tonight. Listen to what he said. Delight thyself in the Lord, and he'll give you the desires of your heart. Now, I want to say one thing about that, then I'll close. Listen very carefully to what I say. If you ever get your desire before your delight, there will never be any delight when you get your desire. Now listen, let me say it to you. It's not just a little play on words. It's a spiritual principle. If you ever get your desire before your delight, then there won't be any delight when you get your desire. See, most of us reason like this, and I have to be uh, honest to say I, I do sometimes. Here's how most of us reason. God, if you will give me what I desire, if you'll give me this, 
If you will do that, I will love you more than I've ever loved you before. God, if you'll give me what I desire, I will love you with all my heart. You know what I believe God does when he hears a prayer like that? I believe God just closes his ears and moves on somewhere else. You know why? Because God knows where the delight is. The delight is in their desire. And that's not what God said. God says, delight thyself in the Lord. And then, then, he'll give you the desires of your heart. I want to say this and we'll have our prayers. I grew up very poor. My mom and daddy were sharecroppers. I tell people across the country my parents were sharecroppers, and many of them don't know what I'm talking about. But you folks of Louisiana with a semi-rural background like Alabamians, you understand what sharecroppers were. There were people who lived on a farm for a place to live and uh, something to eat, maybe a little small portion of the harvest. They, They grew up like that. And when I was young, I, I was tongue-tied. I couldn't talk plain. I, I, I couldn't pronounce certain words. Even today, I have a little difficulty pronouncing some words. And, and, and all of that put together, I, I, was, I was fat all my life. I, you know, I just struggled with being fat all my life. I weighed 75 pounds when I was born. I just, I just grew up <laughs> And all of those things put together created in me a very severe insecurity. Almost a a, a kind of a feeling of inferiority. And I went to school really feeling that I wasn't very likable or attractive or anybody would want to have anything much to do with me. I went through school that way. I know you young people here who have such clever, wonderful gifts in romance won't believe this. But I went all the way through high school and I never had a date. I could never bring myself to ask a girl for a date because I just knew she'd say no and that'd crush my already inferior spirit. And I went all the way through high school, never had a date. Never had a girlfriend. And when I was 19 years old, God called me to be a preacher. And I began to long to serve God and to be what God wanted me to be. And every time I'd think about that, I'd think, God, I, I, I'm, I'm just a nobody and nobody likes me. And, and God, I don't have anybody to help me. And how am I going to serve you? And one day, It dawned upon me what the psalmist said. Delight thyself in the Lord. And he will give you the desires of your heart. And so I began to say, God, I'm going to delight in you. You're all that I need. And whatever desires I have, I don't even know. Would you give me whatever you desire? Because I delight in you. I was at old Howard College. They call it Samford University now in Birmingham, Alabama. I played football there. 
And one day, me and some old football buddies were sitting out on the back side of the building at old Samford University College campus. And as we were sitting there telling stories and joking, down the street came this tall, beautiful young woman. I mean, she was gorgeous. And when I looked at her, I said, oh, God, oh, God, she's pretty. This past April, Carol and I celebrated 55 years of marriage. And I wanted to say, thank God, I didn't marry some old ugly hussy. God gave me grace to let him give the desires. Now you kids sitting here, you say, well, don't ever happen to me, I'm too ugly. No, don't you worry about it, you're not ugly. Everybody's ugly just in different places. (laughs) Just trust the Lord and he'll give you the desires of your heart. And folks, that's some good news for bad times. I want you to bow your head just a minute, please. Now our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed. The message has not been an evangelistic message. But I would be remiss if I did not say that there may be somebody sitting in this building tonight that's not saved. One of you little boys or one of you little girls And you've never trusted Jesus as the Lord of your life. Maybe you've been thinking about it. Maybe you've been to Bible school and heard the Bible taught. Or maybe you've listened to Brother Reggie preach and God's been talking to your heart. But you're not saved. But you'd like to be saved. There may be a teenager here tonight. And maybe you're like I was. Maybe you're sort of beaten down with insecurities. And you say, well, I'm... I'm a nobody, nobody likes me, and I'm not popular or pretty. And maybe God just wanted you tonight to realize you're special in His sight, and God's created you for something unique. And maybe tonight you'd like to slip down this aisle and just take Brother Reggie by the hand and say, Pastor, I want to commit myself afresh and anew to delight in the Lord and let Him be the center of my life. There may be somebody here that's been saved, but you've never been baptized. And tonight you'd like to walk down this aisle and say, Pastor, the next time we have a baptismal service, I want to be baptized. I've trusted Jesus, and I want to be obedient to what he's asked me to do. There may be somebody here that's a church member, but you're not saved. And you know in your heart whether or not you are. You can fool everybody but yourself. You can't fool yourself. If you're not saved, you know you're not saved. And maybe tonight you'd like to be saved. I wonder while our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed and nobody's looking around. I wonder if there's somebody in this building that would say, Brother Junior, I'm not saved, but I want to be saved. I want you to pray for me. I'd like to give my heart to Jesus. 
I wonder why we're bowed. If there's anybody in this building that would say, I'd like to be saved, would you just lift your hand up real high? Anybody in this building tonight? I'd like to be saved sometimes. Just lift it up high. Anybody in this building? God bless you, son. God bless you, boys and girls. I wonder if somebody would say, Brother Junior, I am saved, but I never have been baptized, but I, I need to be baptized, and I want you to pray for me that I will. Would you just lift your hand up that we'll pray for you tonight? Anybody in this building? I need to be baptized. All right. Father, you know more about us than we know about ourselves. And Lord, I pray for these precious hands that have said, I want to be saved someday. And I pray if it be honorable and pleasing to you, you'd help them be saved tonight. Help them not to be ashamed to step down the aisle and just say, Preacher, I want to be saved. I want to give my life to Jesus. Lord, help them come tonight. I pray that you'll help anybody that needs to commit afresh to the Lord that they'll come tonight. In Jesus' name. Now, while we're bowed, some of you need to come. You know God's speaking to you. You know you need to be saved or be baptized. So while we stand and our brother leads us and Brother Reggie's here at the front, would you just step out? Make your way right here to the front. And Brother Reggie will meet you. Let's stand while we sing, please.